So when I was in high school, my friends and I decided we wanted to uh, go swimming, but we wanted to go to this place in Ontario, Canada, which wasn't too far away from where we lived. And uh, there was this, this old, I think it was a rock quarry, and they had these platforms, and they were really super high. I mean, it was like they had the like the, the littler one, and then they had the high one. And so, of course, we went off the little one first, and then we decided, well, let's go off the big one. And the thing about that is you really can't just think about it. you just got to step off and jump. It's when you're in the air that you go, what did I just do? Okay, that's the series right here, right now. It seemed like a good idea. It seemed like this should be something good to do. But right now I'm in the middle of the air thinking, what have I just done? Well, I want to describe a few things. And really, this message is going to set the foundation for the the whole series. And essentially, I want to describe, I'm going to try to describe the fishbowl that we're all living in. And and that's easy if you're standing outside the fishbowl and you're looking at it from the outside, but unfortunately, we're the fish. Or another picture that may help you, um, we're the frog in the kettle that's coming to boil. And we know things are getting hot. We know things are getting uncomfortable. We're not really sure why, and we're concerned about it. And it is. So I want to describe what does it mean that our culture is changing right before our eyes? And how are we as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, supposed to respond? That's essentially where I want to go uh, this weekend. So what do I mean, though, in a sense where I say that our culture is changing? I think we all know that our culture is changing, but let me give you a few tangible ways that our culture is changing. I believe that most of us would say, and you know, I've I'm just I'm going to be 60 years old in May. And I want to just say this is probably the first political season I've ever gone through that has been like super, super contentious and and just uncivil and just just it was it was nasty, it was nasty. And um, so we, we we've seen that we've experienced that we also have. In my mind today, fewer and fewer neighbor to neighbor, face to face relationships. We're not talking to one another face to face. We're, we're, what are we doing? We're settling for video conferencing. We're settling for email. We're settling for texting or phone calls. But we're not talking face to face. There's the other, another thing that's happening right before our eyes. We have a new generation that is coming to maturity right now. My boys are all in, virtually all in this generation. Uh, these are the, the children that are born, uh, they're not children anymore, the youngest one would be my youngest, 18, 19 years old. They were born between the years uh, 1980 and 2000. We call them the millennials. What you may not know is the millennials are the largest, most educated, and most diverse group, and least concerned about spirituality than any, any other generation that's lived in America. Now, let's send a knock on them. Uh, they did a survey recently, and they, basically they asked millennials, how important is spirituality to you? And essentially, 13% of millennials said it's important. 13%. Now, when we say spirituality, we mean yoga, Buddha, <laughs> Hinduism, 
Christianity, whatever. It's that whole bag, 13%. Now, before you, th- you may be a millennial here and you're, you're thinking you're busting. I mean, I'm not busting on you at all. I don't think your parents were much better. Or, uh, every generation has struggled with this question. But our culture is changing. In other words, what I'm saying is today, Christianity has become irrelevant. It's just not relevant. It's not relevant to anyone's life. I mean, it is to us, but it's not to most people. Most of your neighbors, most of the people you work with, they, they don't care. It's, it's not important to them. Oh, yeah, it's important when they're sick or they get, you know, they're struggling with their health or somebody close to them dies. But generally, they don't care. Christians no longer have a privileged place at the table. In fact, we're going to find it's going to be more and more difficult in our culture and uh, to find, and, and many of the freedoms that we naturally, we take for granted are going to go away. We've seen this going away. They're going away. From our highest office to our own computer. Uh, it, 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 the point I want you to see is this. I believe that civility and tolerance, and that's really what I want to focus on uh, this weekend. Civility and tolerance is going. Today, even, to- even the definition of tolerance is being transformed. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. From our highest office to our own computer keyboards, we are becoming more and more an uncivil culture. That's a problem. And why is that easy? Why is that true? Because it's easier to insult somebody. It's easier, it's easy to condemn or denounce people when you aren't stand, when you're behind a keyboard rather than when you're standing face to face with them. It's much, much harder to do it then. My premise is that we need to stop being the pawns of our culture and become change agents for a new civility and tolerance. And that we as Christians must lead the way. This message is really, like I said, it's going to set the foundation for all the things I want to talk about. And, and I'm going to remind you of this as we move along, because I think when we get into some of the other areas, like same-sex marriage and some of the other areas I'm going to talk about, that you're, you're going to say, okay, so what's, what's, the, what's your position on this? What do you think about this? And I'll tell you what I think, and I'll tell you what I think, what the Bible teaches. But I, th- I want to do it within the context of can we can we be civil? Can we be tolerant? Can we talk about it without arguing or or calling the other person the enemy? The question is, how are we going to discuss these hot button issues with those who don't share our worldview? And are there Christian directives that will guide us? And I believe there are. So that's really what I want to do. I want to lay that groundwork. So the question I want to ask you this weekend is. How are we to live in Babylon? And some of you are going, I have no idea what you mean by that, because that doesn't even make sense. You were, I was with you, but then you just went. Here's what I mean. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament was taken by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. They became captives in Babylon for 70 years. They were living in a culture where they were basically work guests. And they had to learn how to live in captivity and as our culture moves more away from God, we as Christ followers have to decide how are we going to respond. We're not being taken to Babylon. Babylon is coming right to us. Um, how are we to live in our Babylon? So, I said this before, context, historical context. The nation of Israel was attacked and taken into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, if you're looking for a name for a child, great name. 
Uh, I won't spell it for you right now, but it's uh, no. I, I can almost guarantee you that nobody on the planet probably has that name. Um, he was the king of Babylon in 605 BC. Uh, they remain. Uh, they they were taken into, out of their promised land, out of the land of Israel, and they were taken to Babylon. And they were 605. They remained as exile for the next 70 years. In fact, the, gener- the whole generation pretty much died out. Now, the question I want to ask is this. If you are one of those exiles, if you are taken by this king into Babylon, into a foreign land, and you became an exile into a, in a foreign land, how would you respond? You have your own Hebrew culture, language, customs, but now you're moving into a strange land with different culture, different language, different different structure. How do you do it? Well, uh, there's a great passage, and I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 137. If you don't have a Bible, we have these chair Bibles, though in the back row you don't have it because I stole it from you. And you're saying, well, thank you very much for doing that. Um, I kind of need that right now. And sorry, look on with the neighbor. Psalm 137, this is on page 476. You say, well, what did the people think? What did those people who were taken into Babylon think? What what, what was going through their heads? Well, we know Psalm 137 tells us. Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of the poplar trees. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? That's what I want to answer. How do you sing the songs of the Lord when you're living in a land that's becoming more and more pagan? What do you do? How do you respond? And that's the question that is ours. The land that we call America is becoming a foreign land right before our eyes. How are we to live when our, when our world and our land becomes darker and darker? How do we do that? Well, God gives them the answer. God tells them, this is, this is how you're to live in Babylon. This is how you're to live in your culture as it gets darker and darker and darker. This is how you live. Jeremiah, and turn to page 576, Jeremiah chapter 29. Because the prophet Jeremiah basically tells them, you're in this foreign land, you're captives, you're going to be there for 70, you're going to be there for a long time. So here's what I want you to do, and this is a message from the Lord. It's not just a message to the Lord to the people of Israel, it's a message to the Lord to us. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army, this is uh, uh, Jeremiah 29, 4. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the fruit they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Don't dwindle away. And then he says this, very interesting. He says, work for the peace or shalom and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. So, so Jeremiah is telling them some pretty important things, and I think they're very applicable to us. First, he says, 
Go on and live your life. Go on and live your life. Don't wait for God to come and rescue you. I know there are Christians here today that believe, uh, I don't mean in this audience, I mean in this world today, that are just waiting. And Listen, I believe the Lord could return at any time. I absolutely believe that. But I think they're living their lives in a sense to say, I'm just waiting for God to get me this, get me off this God forsaken planet. And there were people in Babylon that said, I'm just waiting for God to rescue us out of Babylon. And I believe the message that God is giving to us, as he was giving to the people of Babylon, his people in Babylon is, live your life. Live your life. Have children. Have grandchildren. Plant gardens because this is going to last. This isn't going to be a short-term thing. There was a false prophet in Jeremiah that says, oh, this is only going to last a a minute. But But it turned out that he was a false prophet. Work for the shalom of your neighbors, for as the city thrives, so will you. So this is an amazing thing, what God is telling them. This is where we react with our culture or respond to our culture. What they're being asked to do is to care deeply for the well-being of the pagan people around them in this hostile environment. They're to be concerned about the well-being of the pagan people around them. Here's what it comes down to. We can either curse our culture or we can say, God, use me to be your transforming tool to change my culture, to change the people in my sphere of influence. I believe the second one is what God's calling us to do. God is calling them and he's calling us to be to loving toleration and civility. God is telling the Israelites and us that neither indifference nor hostility is a proper way of treating our pagan neighbors. We must seek shalom. Now, what does shalom mean? Most of you have heard the word and you say, well, I think it means peace. And it does mean peace. But it means more than that. It includes justice and flourishing. They were to care deeply about the well-being of the pagan people who surrounded them in this hostile environment. They were to seek the shalom of the people around them. Because when their neighbors found shalom, they found shalom. That's the principle. As we seek shalom for our neighbors, we discover our own shalom. Now, I just need to give one quick after this, and we'll go on to the next point. But I want to give one disclaimer, because many times we look at our world and say, oh, it's so dark. It's so dark. You know, it's never been easy to live a godly life. The pressures and challenges we face are daunting, and and, and that's nothing new. Think about the first century. Think about the first followers of Jesus Christ. Think about the apostles. They were all executed, right? Um, Think about other parts of the world, in Iran, Saudi Arabia, China, and many other places, where just to be a Christian, just to have a Bible, is, is a death sentence. And yes, it's becoming increasingly more common to be discriminated against and for simply articulating biblical values. But we, we, we've got it easy, really, compared to many who are attempting to live their lives for Jesus in other parts of the world. We have really nothing to complain about. Think about this. For example, it's not illegal to pray. We can, we can own a Bible. We can utter Jesus' name without fear of being tossed in jail. And we can gather together in a, in a meeting, assembly like this, and we can talk about religious things without any fear that these doors are going to be barricaded or, or people are going to come in and throw us out. Maybe you heard about this. This has been on YouTube. 
there was a pastor in Galena recently, and he was one of these street preachers, and, you know, that's, that's his thing. You know, I don't understand. It's not me. It's him. It's his thing, and that's fine. But he was out there exercising his First Amendment rights and preaching, and a man came up in a truck and basically, essentially threatened him to run him over. Now, he didn't, and he was, the man was drunk. We should have got him for DUI from the video, it looked like it. But essentially what happened was the man came over and began to, you know, harass and yell and, you know, different things like that. But in the end, what happened was the Galena police came, and they put the cuffs on the man, and they took him to jail. That's America today, okay, where a person can express their, their views, and another, another person is taken to jail, and so we still have that freedom. Now, some of you are thinking, but how long? Yeah, you're right. Gotcha. But we have it today. We have it today. All right, so that's the first thing. Secondly, the changing definition of tolerance. The word tolerance uh, means a number of different things. Here's what we thought tolerance meant. Tolerance means that we treat one another with dignity and respect, that we listen to their views thoughtfully and respectfully, Tolerance doesn't mean we have to respect or accept opposing ideas. We could disagree with ideas. We could say, that's an idea, but I don't think it's right, and not feel that we're going to be persecuted for that. That's the old definition. The new definition is tolerance means that you must not only respect my ideas, but you must accept them as true. This is the model, and this model really has two major logical problems. First, it assumes that all ideas are equal. They're not. I mean, we know that. That's just illogical. It's illogical to think that all ideas are equal. They're not. This new tolerance has now become, so it's, it, it, people who hold ideas that are different when they're contradictory, it's, it's illogical. You can't, you can say, well, you hold that idea, but they're not equal. They can't be equal. One's right and one's wrong. Maybe they're both wrong. I don't know. Here's the second problem with that definition. If all ideas must be accepted as equally, uh, equally uh, accept the idea that not all ideas are equal, then this new tolerance has now become intolerance by its own definition. What I mean by that, if you say any idea is is equal, any idea, you can put any idea you want out there, but if I say, okay, but my idea of tolerance is that there are right and wrong values and things, and they say, well, that's intolerant. Okay, well, you just you just defeated your definition of tolerance there, right? So there, there's logical contradictions. It's just a mess. Here's the thing. Though this model is illogical and contradictory, it is becoming the norm for many American schools and on college campuses. Communication is being shut down today. It's being shut down today because it's, it's labeled hate speech. That's why conservative uh, people who hold conservative, conservative views can't go to some universities and speak because the universities, they, they don't believe in free speech. They call it hate speech because it doesn't agree with their view. See, again, this is the new tolerance, and I think this is wafting into our culture, and it's becoming stronger and stronger, and uh, <clears throat> the millennials will have a lot to say about where, that culture, where, the, where our culture goes with that. Christian tolerance, though, means 
that I respect the person, I look for fair discussion, and I allow for space to differ about serious matters. And that's why I want this series to be something where you may hold an opposing view from another person, maybe even another Christian, but you don't have to go off on that. You don't have to become uncivil. You don't have to see them as the enemy. You can have a, a, a view and say, okay, I see what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. Um, but we don't agree. And that's perfectly okay. And that's where I want this sermon to go as far as the application today. I want to talk about our new need, uh, the desperate need for civility. And there's a few things I want to say about that. The first thing is, as I've said before, Civility is not relativism. In other words, being a civil Christian doesn't mean that we must approve of other people's ideas or behavior. And we have a culture out there now, I kind of alluded to it, where people are saying, if you don't accept my view as equal with yours, you are, it it could be considered hate speech, it could be considered uh, you're a bigot, whatever you want to say. To say that all beliefs and values deserve to be treated as if they're equal is, is to endorse relativism. It's a perspective that is incompatible with the Christian faith and practice. You see, the Bible calls us, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible calls us to question beliefs. In fact, the Bible calls you to be good Bereans, that whatever I say that doesn't square with the Word of God, you throw out and say, I don't see that in the Word of God. But it also says... That we are, dis- we are to discern teachings. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. It seems like what they're calling us to is discernment. 1 John 4.1 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There's false teaching. The definition of false teaching must mean that there's true teaching and they're in a opposition to one another. So that's just what we're called to do. Secondly, you need, we need to see the image of God in others. We need to treat people with courtesy, not because we know them, but because we see them as human beings and like us, they're made in the image of God. They're made in the image of God. That should count for something. We are to treat each person as valuable to God, made in His image. We must engage in the hard work of seeing what God sees in the other person. People we don't like, people we don't agree with. We need to see what they could be in Christ. We've got to stop this idea of seeing somebody who holds a view that may be very wrong and very, from our perspective, very just wrong. Just immoral and whatever, and say, they're the enemy. No, they're not. Do you see the image of God in in others? Don't feel that civility means you need to like everyone. (laughs) You're going to have strong disagreements with people. You don't need to make them your friend, but you you, you do need to treat them with dignity and respect. And like I said before, remember, and this this came out really to me, and I saw it during the political season, that we saw whoever we saw on the other side as the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're not the enemy. And by the way, even if they are the enemy, you still got a problem. This is what Jesus said. 
This is Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it, heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your, what does it say there? Enemies. Yes, it does say that there. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. And that's essentially what I'm saying in this message. We have to look at other people who hold vastly different views from us and say they're not the enemy. And even if they are, I am still on the hook as a follower of Jesus Christ to love them. I can't get out of that. You can't get out of that if you're an obedient follower of Jesus Christ. You can't. This is your call. Why? Because you're acting like a child of your Father in heaven. Because He loves them even though they may be lost. Irrespective of what view they hold. And yet I see Christians on Facebook and other times just acting like they're the enemy. Last time I checked, they're under the power of the prince of this world. Like you and I were at one point until God set us free. And when he set us free and he turned our hearts and opened our eyes, everything changed, didn't it? But what we want to do is we want them to get their views right first. When really the reality they need is they need the Lord. The next thing is don't play fast and, uh, with the, and loose with the truth. We need to, we need to cultivate a, a, a civility that doesn't play fast and loose with the truth. We need to stop playing. Sometimes we skew the facts to make our point and we know it's not true. We also must not shrink back from uh, from the truth by remaining silent. Sometimes you say, "Oh, I just want to get in. I don't want to get into it." Sometimes you need to speak up. Here's the problem, and this is what, <laughs> this is what this is the problem I see in the Christian culture, and I'm part of it. By the way, I'm in I'm in the I'm in the fishbowl with you. Okay, I'm in the pot that seems to get hotter and hotter. Okay, so I I'm I'm there with you. Here's the problem. Oftentimes, people who, who are strong in their practice of civility lack strong convictions. And people with strong convictions lack civility. They're the ones you're hearing. And you're going, oh, you didn't just say that. Oh, really? Oh, ow, oh. And then the ones that really get, have thought it out, they're just quiet. The great verse in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. You'll have it on the screen here in a minute. Work at living in peace with everyone. And work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Notice what we're to work at. There's a balance here in this verse. It's a very important balance. We're to live at peace with everyone. And we're to live a holy life. Now, I realize, and the, the Bible says, is, as it is with you, live at peace with all men. Now, that means there's some people that you just can't live with peace with because they've got the wall up and there's nothing you can do about it. But the wall should never be yours. You should never put a wall, the wall up. You should be taking walls down. If people put walls up and you can't get, then that's, that's their choice. That's their, here's the principle. We need to live a life of peace with everyone and live a life of conviction. See, both of those go hand in hand. We're trying to live at peace with people. Therefore, we, 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 we deal with them civilly and we have toleration for their views. But it also means that we have conviction. 
And we're willing to speak up about our convictions in a, in a, a thoughtful way. We need to cultivate, the next one is we need to cultivate the character of humility. Humility comes to us because, we're, this is maybe one of the bigger things that we've forgotten. Humility comes because we real. if you understand the gospel, and this is one of the, by the way, this is one of the things that people in our culture who are not Christians really get angry with us about, and rightfully so. They somehow have gotten the idea that Christians think they have it all together. Like they never sin, they never do anything wrong. Instead of acknowledging, that we're fallen sinners, we're flawed, we're broken pots, the Bible says. And without Jesus, we would have no hope at all. And Jesus is doing the repair work on our lives. We haven't, no one has arrived. We're all broken, we're all in need of... And when you understand that, then maybe we start acknowledging that to people and say, the gospel doesn't mean that I have my act together. The gospel just means I figured out I don't have my act together and I need somebody to help me get my act together. And without His grace and without His mercy, I have no chance at it. But with His grace and His mercy, there's, there's hope. That's what the gospel says. But you know what? They're not hearing that. What they're hearing is, you Christians think you're so righteous and good and perfect and everything. We come across arrogant. Humility means that we become good listeners, really hearing the other person's belief. It also means that we are expecting we will learn from them and become richer in our understanding for doing so. That we really hear their arguments. We really hear what they're saying. We may not agree with it, but we hear it. And we, we understand that there may be a good reason why they hold that view. We may not agree with it, but we can at least see the logic to it. I like this quote, concentrate on your own sinfulness and on the other person's humanness. That's where humility comes from. We realize, except for Christ, I'm just one beggar who found bread. That's all I am. I did nothing to achieve it. I did nothing to earn it. Well, is it possible for Christians, for the church, to be one of the main factors where good citizens who treat all people with civility and tolerance, even those they, they dislike and disagree with, can the church be that place? Can we, the church, be the place where we, we show, we respect the image of God in every person we come in contact with? We show love and tolerance and civility. We're good listeners. We don't shrink away from sharing our opinion, but we do it in a thoughtful way, a loving way. Is it possible that, that we may be able to change our culture because our culture is spinning out of control towards uncivil and intolerant? So we as Christians, wouldn't one of the greatest things to be said about Christian, you know, the early church, you know what the, the, the take on them was by the people who were looking from the outside into the fishbowl? They love one another. Well, that's good too. But maybe what our culture needs to hear the most from us is they are civil, they are tolerant, they are respectful. They are humble. Maybe if the world saw that, they might say, tell me about the gospel. I believe we followers of Jesus must blaze a new trail. This might become the most powerful witness we have of the transformational love of the gospel in our lost world. 
We Christians must become more gentle and respectful people. We need to chart the course for the rest of our culture. We need to be change agents as Christians, not the pawns of our culture. We need to stop being the pawns of our culture and just allow our culture to tell us how we should respond. We need to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit to a world that is going dark. And we can't, what I'm suggesting is you cannot do this on your own. You, you, you are absolutely outmanned and undergunned to do this on your own. You can't leave this place and say, okay, I'm going to do it. No, you can't. But you have something that I haven't talked about yet. Galatians chapter 2, or 5, chapter 22. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if we begin to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit to a world that is uncivil and intolerant, and we begin to show the fruit of the Spirit in the midst of the onslaught of that, there may be people who say, I don't know what you got, but I need it. The problem is they're not seeing it. Here's the good news. As this world gets darker, if we start to live and demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, it becomes brighter. You ever notice that when you take a flashlight and use it just kind of like when it's just starting to get dark? Is this thing working? Pitch dark in a cave, turn it on, all of a sudden, boom, there it is. Jesus says, I want you to be shining lights. How are we going to be a shining light in our culture? Well, I think that changes. I think right now we have an incredible opportunity to show the world what it means to be loving, civil, accepting. When I mean accepting, you understand what I mean about tolerance and intolerance. What difference would that make in our relationships? What difference would that make for the gospel? I think it would make all the difference in the world. I think people would start seeing the true impact of what the gospel can have in our lives. The question is, what will we do and how will we push back the tide? The, the, the communique that the people in Babylon got was this. Seek the shalom of your pagan neighbor. And as you seek the shalom of your pagan neighbor, you will find shalom for you. In your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, wherever you are, seek the shalom. And as you do that, everything can change. Stand with me. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for uh, giving us your instruction tonight. May we take it to heart. May your Holy Spirit rule the day and the week and the months to come. And may we be known at Hope Church as a church that not only loves one another and loves you desperately, but we love our enemies. We love those who hold a different view than we do. Because we're reflecting your love. Because your, your word tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. We were enemies to you. And you loved us through it. Father, I believe this could transform this community as a new civility, as a new tolerance, 
is a new love is demonstrated by your Christ followers in this place. We ask that you would do a work in our hearts. Change us, Father. Fill us with your spirit. And may you win the day as you use us. And when other people see our good works, how we respond to a dark world, may they glorify our Father in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.